innocent or guilty. Many lives throughout history have teetered on the balance awaiting the declaration of one of those two words, innocent or guilty. Our sermon series is titled, No King But Jesus. The passage this morning is gonna challenge us to really think about that phrase regarding our own lives. If your life was on trial, if the law of your life was to serve no king but Jesus, are you innocent or guilty? Is Jesus king in your life? Our passage this morning is First Samuel 12. In the ESV, it's titled Samuel's Farewell Address, although we will see over the next few weeks that Samuel isn't going quite anywhere just yet. But this chapter does act as a major transition. It marks the end of an era transitioning from Israel being ruled by judges to Israel now being ruled by a king. And we're going to find ourselves in what feels like a courtroom trial. Saul's just been anointed king, and Samuel, never the one to back down, is going to address God's people one more time. He's going to start first by putting himself on trial. Then he's going to put Israel on trial. And as Israel's last judge, he's even going to cast the verdict guilty. But it does not end there. Let's jump right into our text this morning. First Samuel chapter 12. It begins on page 181 in the provided Bibles. There should be one around with you. And I really encourage you to follow along with me this morning. We're going to start by kind of walking through our passage, highlighting a number of things along the way, and then we're going to consider three key points. So let's begin with verses 1 through 5. 1 Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Now this is really an interesting and quite clever way to start a speech. Samuel begins by putting himself on trial before all of Israel. He's essentially asking, have I done anything wrong? Have I sinned against you? Have I been an unjust judge, a wicked and worthless priest? 
Remember how 1 Samuel started. We had Eli, right, and his wicked and worthless sons, we learned, who were immoral and corrupt, stealing extra portions of meat with fat, stealing delicious ribeye steaks. That's a travesty. In fact, they were even sleeping with the women serving at the tent of meeting. Samuel's contrasting himself with the wicked priests that came before him. But he cleverly goes even further. Remember, too, Samuel has already told Israel how their kings would treat them if they got what they wanted, and they did. That they would take their sons and daughters, their best fields and vineyards, their servants and animals, donkeys, oxen. Basically, the kings would oppress them and take from them. But we see Samuel has done nothing of the sort. In fact, he's been a good judge, a good leader. Samuel is put on trial, and he's declared innocent by God's people. I found this actually a bit ironic if you think about 1 Samuel to this point. In many ways, Israel already had right before them the great leader that they desired, someone that had treated them well, even by the Lord's mighty hand has delivered them. If you remember back to the Ebenezer Stone story, it could be argued that Israel already had the very leader that they desired right in front of them, but one who was not a king, because Samuel knew that only God was king. Nevertheless, we have a king now. Samuel's put on trial, and he's found innocent. Let's continue. Verse 6 through 12. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies." that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Samuel's appealing to Israel to remember. To remember their history. The things that God has done for them. As one commentator puts it, Samuel puts out a, points out a pattern throughout Israel's whole history. Crisis, cry for help, deliverance through leadership raised up by Yahweh. God's people find themselves in a crisis either from their own sin or maybe the sin and oppression from someone else. They cry out to God for help, for deliverance, and then God raises up a leader to deliver them. Crisis, 
cry for help than God's deliverance. Yet in the most recent crisis Israel found themselves in that we looked at briefly last week concerning King Nahash and the surrounding Ammonite army, instead of crying out to God for help, instead of crying out to God to rescue them, they demand a king. They demanded a king to deliver them instead of crying out to God for deliverance. In essence, they're skipping a step trying to subvert God who had proven himself over and over to be a faithful deliverer time and time again. You see, this really drives home the significance of the sin associated with Israel's demand for a king. The Lord God was their king. He is their king. Yet here, instead of crying out to God for deliverance, they demanded an earthly king just like the rest of the world. Fundamentally, they're rejecting God as their king as we've talked about. So to continue the the courtroom trial scene, here Samuel with the Lord as his witness, declares Israel to be guilty. Guilty of the sin of rejecting God as their king, but also Samuel's pointing out that they are guilty of forgetting God's faithfulness. Forgetting all those times over and over and over again where God delivered them. Now before we get too harsh on Israel this morning, I think we need to pause and reflect here for a moment. Because Israel, I think, is not alone when it comes to forgetting God's faithfulness. Samuel's pointing out in many ways what I believe has been one of our biggest struggles and sins as God's people, even today, throughout history, in fact. And that is forgetfulness. We forget. We fail to remember God in our daily lives. We fail to remember God's faithfulness. And then as a result Of that forgetfulness, we search for solutions. We search for deliverance in the world instead of in and through God, through the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. You see, we all find ourselves at times in crisis, whether because of our own sins or the sins of others, and these times often drive us to our knees, crying out for help. And the question here, I believe, is where or in whom are we going to seek deliverance? Do we just grin and bear it and try to do it all on our own, deliver ourselves from our own crisis? Do we go further down into the trap of looking for deliverance in the world and sinful solutions? Or do we forget God over and over and over again? Or... Do you remember the faithfulness of the one and the only one who can truly deliver? I don't know about you, but I find for myself that I forget probably even more often when I am not in crisis. Now, as a pastor, I cheat a little bit because I have a lot more daily reminders and cues in my normal work week about God than many of you do probably in your jobs. But I do remember how far too easy it was to go through a whole day, a whole week, dare I say it, a whole month, or maybe outside of Sunday, it would appear as if we've forgotten about God. Forgotten who our king was. Because instead, we're just going through the motions of life. 
busy, working, running all around. I have seven kids. I understand. I promise. You see, at the end of the day, Satan, our flesh, they do not want us to remember who our real king is. They want to be king. And often, like Israel, we can find ourselves guilty of forgetting God's faithfulness. This is why it's so important for all of us, every single one of us, to have some reminders in our lives. Some Ebenezer stones that remind us of God's faithfulness. That remind us that God is our deliverer. Maybe it's remembering your conversion. When you first truly heard and understood, God gave you eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Remembering your testimony, holding on to that daily and what God did there. Or maybe it's remembering your baptism. When you got on a stage somewhere or a lake or a pool and you were buried with Christ in his death, raised to new life as you came out of the water before your church family. Or maybe for you it's remembering a hard, really dark time in your life. When perhaps all hope seemed lost, yet... God delivered you from that darkness and he filled your life with marvelous light. Maybe you're in a dark time right now. Maybe you're in a crisis right now, crying out for help. I believe Samuel is telling us as he told Israel, remember, remember the Lord. Cry out to him. He is the great deliverer. Remember what God has done for you. No matter how bad it seems, remember that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place, to deliver you from your sins, from your hopelessness, and give you new life in him. Cry out to God. Remember. And we could talk all morning about that, but it's a great thing to reflect on this morning. Do we forget or do we remember that we have a great deliverer in Jesus Christ? That we have no king but Jesus. Let's not forget. Let's not be guilty like Israel of forgetting God's faithfulness and seeking deliverance somewhere else. Let's continue. Let's pick up now in verse 13. And now behold... The king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. They got their wish. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and... Your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now this is 
pretty straightforward here, but I don't want us to miss what Samuel is doing here. You see, despite this great transition, this huge change for Israel that had taken place, Israel now has a king. The Lord has given the people what they wanted. He set a king over them, answering their requests. Although there's been this big transition in leadership, a whole political structure change, God's covenant, his promises, his relationship to his people is going to stay the same. Samuel specifically reminding the people here, including the king, he's not above this. He's reminding them of the Mosaic covenant. Or way back in Exodus, God's people were delivered from slavery in Egypt, led out by Moses and Aaron. Samuel's already mentioned them. And then at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the law, the commandments, and it was read to all God's people. And here, Samuel's essentially summarizing that covenant. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, both you and the king, it will be well. But if you do not obey the Lord and rebel against his commandments, then it will be bad for both you and the king. Essentially, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings judgment for God's people and their king. And then we have this amazing thing happen, a miraculous event Let's keep the courtroom picture going. It's like the Lord himself is banging the gavel, declaring that the verdict was just, that the trial was true, affirming everything that Samuel told Israel. Samuel's led them well. He's been faithful to God's call. Israel has rebelled against God by demanding a king. The covenant's still in place, and God bangs the gavel with a thunderstorm, affirming that everything Samuel said was true. And of course, we know that this event was miraculous. It was a miracle because is it not wheat harvest today? Right? You guys knew that. Anything that happens on wheat harvest day is a big deal. You know, when I first read this, I had some assumptions, but I can't say I am a Middle East wheat harvest expert. Maybe you are, and that's why that wasn't funny. But you see, Samuel's pointing out here that it was the dry season. In fact, in this area of the world, it was a drought season. The wheat would be all dried out, ready to harvest, and bam, God brings the thunder and rain. So this was a very, very unlikely occurrence during this season. It's even more unlikely that it occurred right after Samuel asked God to do it. And in fact, it was probably a bit devastating to their crops, I know our corn farmers here love it when their corn's all dried out and we get that big thunderstorm, right? I think that's bad. I don't know anything about farming. And as a result, though, Israel cowers in fear before the Lord, before Samuel. As God affirms all that Samuel has said, he bangs the gavel, reaffirms his covenant instructions with his people. Let's look at the rest of our text and see how Israel responds, picking up verse 19 through 25. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet 
Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So how does Israel respond to their guilt, to this great thunderstorm from God? Well, here, as they probably should have in the first place with King Nahash, they cry out in fear and they ask Samuel to pray for them. Now, I think this is subtle in their plea, but I think it's fairly significant. You see, there's an indication here of how far Israel had wandered from God. Because you see, they ask Samuel to cry out to his God, to the Lord your God, instead of our God, seemingly indicating the separation that had from God. They were, in fact, though, rightly afraid of God's power and might. They acknowledged their guilt, they acknowledged their sin, and they acknowledged that they deserve death for that sin, for the evil they partook. And they specifically asked Samuel to pray for them so that they may not die seems pretty harsh seems like a low moment and how does the lord respond don't miss it here god responds to the cries of his people to their repentance to their confession of sin with grace with mercy do not be afraid he just scared them Yet, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. We'll talk about this more later, but do not miss the conclusion of Samuel's address here. He's innocent, Israel is guilty, yet God responds to them with grace and mercy. Now, before we move on to our key points this morning, I want to highlight one final thing from this section of our passage, another pattern in God's word that we shouldn't miss because we can see it over and over and over throughout both the Old and even the New Testament. You see, as we come to this big major transition, a passing of the baton from from Samuel, the last judge, to Saul, the first king, in verse 24, we get the simple and clear instruction from Samuel. He says, fear the Lord and serve him with all your heart. You see, throughout God's word, God's deliverers, his leaders tend to boil down God's instruction with this same simple, consistent message. When Moses turns the baton over to Joshua in Deuteronomy, he says this in Deuteronomy 6, 2, that you may fear the Lord your God by keeping all his statutes and commandments. And in 6, 4, hear, O Israel, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then Joshua passes on the baton in Joshua 24, 14 through 15, a verse that many of you probably have in your house somewhere. 
Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or let's consider a future king, King Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, where he reveals essentially that he chased all the ways of the world. He did it all. And at the end, he boils it all down in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. He's saying, I've tried everything. I've done everything. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You see, at all these major transitions, we get essentially the same message. Fear the Lord. Love and serve him with all of your heart. Regardless of what's going on, how bad the people's rebellion has been, the message is clear. Choose today to love and serve the Lord with all of your heart. Friends, it doesn't matter if you have a king, a judge, a manager, a CEO, a pastor, a president leading you. God is your king. And no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in our country, no matter what's going on in our world right now, and I know there's a lot, we have no king but Jesus. He calls us to love him and serve him faithfully with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our soul. Let's consider three key points from our text this morning. I want to look at the three main characters in our passage and really what we can learn from each of them. So we got three characters. We have Samuel, we have Israel, and then we have the Lord. Three characters, three points. So first, Samuel. I want us to consider Samuel's leadership and legacy. Samuel had been leading his people. He'd been doing a lot. Now he's passing on the baton. So let's consider his leadership and legacy. We're all in many ways going to pass the baton off to someone in our lives, right? Whether it's your children, maybe it's a coworker, a brother or sister in the Lord, or a brother and sister in the flesh, or someone else. And it's worth stepping back at times to really consider our own leadership and our own legacy, Now, before any of you tune me out because you're sitting there thinking, I'm far too young, or I'm not a leader, let me say this. If you are a believer, you are a leader. I'm gonna say it again just so you remember, all right? If you are a believer, then you are a leader. If you are a believer, in addition, you should be all seeking to pass on a legacy of faith. And that isn't just going to magically happen at the very end of our life. It's going to happen throughout our lives. God calls all of his people to be his ambassadors, to be his hands and feet, co-heirs with Christ. We're all princes and princesses in God's kingdom, which means you are all called to be a leader in this world for God's glory and for his kingdom. So in light of that, what can we learn from Samuel's leadership and legacy this morning? Well, first and foremost, I believe Samuel gives us an excellent, excellent example of how to live our lives, especially when it comes to our character. 
In verses 1 through 5, as we looked at, Samuel's character essentially is put on trial before God's people. His whole life in leadership is on trial, laid out before the people. I'm sure we would all enjoy that, right? Have a documentary made of your life, show it to the whole church, and we'll just cast cast judgment on you. But yet this is what happened, and Samuel is found innocent. I think the phrase that summarizes Samuel's character best is used by Paul concerning the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy and Titus. And that is Samuel's character is above reproach. His life, his leadership is above reproach. Samuel asked all of Israel to consider his life. If he had wronged them, acted wickedly, take from them, been corrupted by bribery or anything, and he's found innocent. His life and character are found to be above reproach. Now let's not make a mistake here. That doesn't mean that he was sinless or perfect, but instead he consistently lived a life where he was striving to serve the Lord and lead God's people in a way that would honor and glorify God. He loved and served the Lord faithfully with all of his heart. Now, there's even more parallels between Samuel's character and Paul's qualification for elders. In verses 22 through 23, we see that Samuel says that it would, in fact, be a sin for him not to pray for God's people and that he was going to continue to instruct them in the good and right way. In other words, Samuel is to pray for God's people and teach God's word to them. Samuel would make a great elder. Because this is what God's word calls the leaders of his church to be all about. We're to be above reproach. Not perfect, but striving to honor and glorify God in all that we do. Loving and serving God faithfully with all our hearts. We are to pray for you. Teach you God's word. And so in light of that, what do we learn? What do we all learn from Samuel's leadership and legacy? Well, an easy one is that as a church, these are the characteristics and qualifications that we should be looking for, and not just looking for, but expecting to see in our elders and pastors. Men whose character is above reproach, who are men of prayer, who teach God's word. This was convicting for me this week as I considered my own leadership and legacy. Is my life above reproach? But also, if you've been here for too long, you've all probably heard Pastor Chris say this. All of us, every single believer, should be seeking to meet and live out these same biblical qualifications. You see, Samuel isn't just an example for our elders. He is a good one, but he's an example for every single one of us this morning. You see, we should all seek to have a character that is above reproach. Not based on worldly standards, but based on God's standard, based on his word. You know, a popular thing in our culture right now is that we wanna be on the right side of history. You heard that before? I'm gonna get myself in trouble. We need to be on the right side of God's word, period. Amen? We need to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. I'm going to rewind a second. That doesn't mean we be rude or mean 
or difficult on social media, though, okay? That means we're transformed more and more like Christ, graciously, lovingly sharing truth in love. Walking by the Spirit, fighting against the sin in our life, striving to love and serve the Lord faithfully with all our hearts. Not halfway, not just on Sundays, but all day, every day. And friends, we must pray. We cannot pray enough. We must be brothers and sisters who pray for one another, who pray for those who don't know Christ, who pray for the laborers to go out into the field and reap a harvest by God's grace. Praying without ceasing, bringing every aspect of our lives before the Lord. Whether we're in crisis or not, bringing our whole lives in front of the Lord, crying out to him to work in us and through us. And finally, we need to be people who take the opportunities that God gives us to share his marvelous truth with the people that he puts in our lives. The people in your life that you know that don't yet know Jesus were put there for a reason. Share Christ. Whether that's just sharing the gospel with a friend, with a neighbor, teaching a class, teaching our children, preaching, share Christ's good news. Teach people about Jesus. Or as Samuel puts it, instruct in the good and right way. And then one day, friends, as we look back on our leadership and our legacy, may we all be able to say like Paul did in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. I really do pray we could repeat these words one day, friends. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so like Paul, may God use us to bear a legacy of helping others love Christ. I believe those are the things we can learn from Samuel's leadership and legacy. Now, second, let's consider Israel. God's people who were found and declared guilty. I want us to consider the seriousness and the significance of Israel's sin. Or really, let's just skip to it. The seriousness and significance of sin, period. I know that doesn't give us the warm and fuzzies, but we must understand this reality. You see, God's grace is awesome, it's so good, but sometimes, maybe just for me, because God's grace is so amazing, so overwhelming, I forget the seriousness and significance of my own sin. Which sounds funny, but it's actually unfortunate because in reality, the better we understand the seriousness and significance of our own sin, our own heart that rebels against God, the more we will come to realize how absolutely amazing God's grace really is. You see, Israel was confronted with the reality that they are guilty, that they stood before Samuel, before the Lord as his witness, condemned. They even acknowledged it themselves, saying, we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for a king. There was no hiding there before Samuel, before the Lord. Their sin is laid out. 
They even ask, right, Samuel to pray for them because they're so afraid of God. They're afraid of his power, his might, his wrath because they knew they deserved to die. They deserved a just judgment, which in this case was death. Although it hadn't been written yet, you see, they knew the reality of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. God sent a great thunderstorm causing all of Israel to tremble to fear the Lord. Studying this passage this week gave me, honestly, a new perspective on a challenging passage found in Paul's letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 2.12, Paul tells us, he tells believers that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's one of those hard verses. How do I manage God's grace when he's calling me to work out my salvation in fear and trembling. You see, the context of this passage, Paul goes on to walk and talk about doing all things without grumbling, so that, may we be, that we may be blameless and innocent amidst a crooked and twisted generation, that we would shine like lights in the world, so that on the day of Christ, on the day of judgment, when we will stand before the Lord to give an account, when we're in the final courtroom, we might have confidence. How? Because like Israel, we will understand the sobering reality of what we deserve for our sin. That we deserve to be declared guilty. But through fear and trembling because of the weight and the reality of that truth, we would have even more confidence in our salvation Not because of anything we've done, because we'd realize even more and more and more that it is because of God and the work he's done in us, that it doesn't depend on me. It's not up to me. My salvation isn't a result of my obedience, but instead it is a gift of God. We would have wrestled with our faith, fear and trembling to come and understand more fully all of Romans 6.23, That yes, for the wages of sin is death, that's what I deserve, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news, friends. You see, we should be struck probably more often than we are with the seriousness and significance of our sin. The result of our sin should be death. And especially as believers, we need to realize that our sin has drastic consequences. It can have drastic consequences in our personal lives and the lives of those around us. And often it can have drastic consequences to the witness of Christ in this world. Now I know you all watch the news. Maybe you watch social media a bit. In fact, I'll prove it. You see, I had a ball joke this morning ready to go for Chris, but some reason I thought it might be inappropriate today. See, I was a little worried Eva might come up and slap me. (laughs) Is that too soon? (laughs) Sorry. But you see, so often that our Christian witness is not good because of sin. You know, we see this far too often. See, I know we can all get worked up about social media, political things, fight for political causes, and and that can be really good. But the reality is we should be more and more worked up that millions, actually billions of people right now don't know the second half of Romans 6.23. Instead, they just get the wages of sin is death. 
And that should compel us to share Christ. Understanding the seriousness and significance of sin in the world should compel us to do something about it. Live out our faith on mission. We want to be a worshiping community on mission, calling others, calling each other to love and serve the Lord faithfully with all our hearts. In addition, for each of us personally, our sin should cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We see not a fear that, that paralyzes us or leads us to, to hopelessness, to despair, but instead a fear and trembling that cause us to fight the sin in our lives and then cling to the cross. Cling to the hope and salvation we have in Christ. Cling to the Ebenezer stone, the solid foundation, the rock, Jesus Christ, who's never gonna change, who is in fact our deliverer to shout out, I have no king but Jesus. And do everything we can to love and serve him with all our hearts battling against all of those little things in our lives and our hearts that want to take Christ's throne. And now let's talk about the Lord. Our final key point we need to consider is the Lord in our passage. The true king. And I have to say what stands out to me most is the graciousness of God. The graciousness of God. Yes, he sends a mighty thunderstorm that scares all of Israel. So let that be said. God does not seem to hesitate to show his power and reveal sin in order to bring his people back to himself. God does not seem to hesitate to show his power to reveal sin in our lives in order that it might bring his people back to him. That's a good thing. We shouldn't forget that. But I want to focus on verses 20 through 22. God's people cry out in fear, acknowledging their sin, pleading for Samuel to pray for them. And what's the response? Here it is again, 20 through 22. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God responds with grace. Let's get back to our courtroom scene. Israel is guilty before the Lord. They rejected God as their king by demanding a new king. They even plead guilty themselves. There's no contest. Yet, despite all of that, God responds in grace. Instead of turning his people away, sending them off to the destruction they deserve, he once again offers them himself. He says, don't turn aside to, to empty things that can't deliver. They're worthless because there's only one thing, only one person that can deliver. God doesn't say go try something else because there isn't anything else. Brothers and sisters, there's only one deliverer. There's only one true king. Everything else is empty hopes, empty promises because they cannot deliver us from our sin. They cannot grant us eternal life. Only God can. I love that yet in verse 20. 
God seems to like his conjunctions. God responds to Israel's hopelessness with a yet God moment. Instead of getting the wage, the punishment they deserve, they get God's grace. Yet God. It says, yet do not turn away. Return to God and serve him for the Lord will not forsake you. I couldn't help but be reminded of Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, where Paul paints an exact similar picture for us. Here it is. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is that now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. But God. God in his great mercy and grace responds to sinners, responds to the guilty, not with death, not with condemnation, but instead with a gracious sacrificial offering of himself. Turn back to me, he calls us. Serve the Lord with all your heart. We are all sinners, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, if our life is put on trial, we're gonna stand there guilty. Yet God, but God, the graciousness of God. In him we can have eternal life. Be declared innocent because we have Christ's righteousness, the crown of righteousness that Paul wants us to look forward to. Brothers and sisters, our text, I believe, calls for a response. As we consider the type of leadership and legacy that the Lord calls us to, as we consider the significance and seriousness of our own sins, and despite all of that, as we consider the graciousness of God, the proper thing to do is to respond. Now, hopefully, we're gonna respond in our hearts in our minds, and even with our actions as we head out this morning to live on mission. But in a moment, we're going to respond together by partaking in communion. You see, in our passage, Israel is challenged to remember who God is, what God has done, and then respond. And this is in many ways what communion is all about. We go to the Lord's table and we remember who God is. We remember what God has done for us. We gather together this morning to celebrate a meal that actually points forward to a future meal. Well, friends, one day we're going to literally get to sit at the king's table and dine with King Jesus. But yet it's also a meal that calls us to remember the past, to remember all the way back to the Passover meal in Egypt. We've talked about Moses a little bit already. All the way back to that first Passover meal where a lamb was sacrificed. Its blood was spread on the doorposts 
of all those who believed so that death might pass over them and thus save the life of the firstborn son. Which then, friends, points us to another key event. It points us to Christ, the Son of God, who wasn't passed over because of a sacrificial lamb, but instead became the sacrificial lamb himself. The perfect, spotless Son who laid down his life for us, who took on the wages of sin that we deserve so that we might have the free gift of eternal life by God's grace through faith in him. As we celebrate communion, we remember the past. We look forward to the future. But we should also respond. Respond personally by clinging to the cross this morning. Setting aside any of those other kings in our lives and declare not just with our words but with our actions that we have no king but Jesus. Communion is for those who have trusted Christ who are trusting in his death and sacrifice for the only means of their salvation. It's for believers. Because as we partake, we are in many ways declaring together that we have no king but Jesus. That it's his body and his blood that all of my faith is in. And if you're not there yet this morning, it's appropriate for you to not partake. But make no mistake about it, God offers himself to you. He says, don't turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, but instead turn to Christ who offered him his very self in your place so that one day when we stand before him, you might be declared innocent.